We have two short scripture readings this morning, and they come from the very beginning and the very end of the Bible. The first is the final verse of the creation poem in Genesis 1, as God surveyed all that he had created. How did he feel about it? Here's what Genesis tells us. God looked at what he had done. All of it was very good. Evening came, and then morning. That was the sixth day. Now we skip all the way to the very end of the Bible, to the New Testament book of Revelation. This is Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. It's a vision of the fullness of time, the culmination of all history, and what will become of that good creation God made. Listen for God's word. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had disappeared, and so had the sea. Then I saw new Jerusalem, that holy city, coming down from God in heaven. It was like a bride dressed in her wedding gown and ready to meet her husband. I heard a loud voice shout from the throne, God's home is now with his people. We will live with them, and they will be his own. Yes, God will make his home among his people. He will wipe all tears from their eyes, and there will be no more death, suffering, crying, or pain. These things of the past are gone forever. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. So, last week, I invited you to join me in a bit of speculation to connect some dots from the New Testament for the purpose of taking a moment to muse, to muse about something that is implied but not actually described in the New Testament's four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Specifically, I invited you to muse about what likely took place during 15 unrecorded years of Jesus' life prior to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry at age 30. What was Jesus up to between roughly age 15 and 30? And what does our answer to that question mean for us who follow Jesus? Well, if you connect those dots in Scripture... It's pretty clear that during those years, Jesus was in business. Jesus was in partnership with his dad in a family-owned carpentry firm there in his home village of Nazareth. And last week, I described an aha moment that I had years ago when my mental image of Jesus on the job on a typical day was dramatically transformed. It was during my first visit to Israel when I came to realize that just over the hill from Jesus' small home village of Nazareth, just four miles down the road, was the rather significant Greek city of Sepphoris, which presumably was where most of the work for carpenters was. And suddenly, I had a whole new picture of a typical day on the job for Joseph and Son LLC. <laughs> Turns out that Jesus and his father were not simply village tinkerers. They were part of a complex, bustling economy. And what that means, to put it bluntly, is that during those 15 years, just like many of you, Jesus had a real job. 
And last week, I made a bold claim, calling this the gospel of 15 years. And by this, I mean that a significant element of the good news of Jesus, of the story of how the eternal word became flesh, is that Jesus experienced a whole lot of what you and I experience each day. That during those 15 years of gainful employment, Jesus lived a life like ours. And for me, this aha moment added even more depth and even more heft to a beautiful Hebrew word that scripture uses to describe Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. So this week, I want to invite you to continue to muse with me about those 15 years, but I want to shift the lens just a little bit and muse not so much about Jesus' daily hassles and challenges as a real employee of a, and working a real job, but instead about the actual work that Jesus as a carpenter did over those 15 years, as in the literal physical stuff that he created on any given day on the job. Now to make this a little bit more concrete, I thought we should try and imagine some specific object that Jesus the carpenter would likely have made. And we could, for instance, imagine a bed or a door frame or a market stall, maybe even a house. But I decided that this morning we should imagine that Jesus made a table not unlike this one on the screen right now. Now, I want to be clear, scripture never tells us that Jesus made a table. This is an imagination exercise, so go with me. And this week, as I thought about this hypothetical table that carpenter Jesus made, I found myself imagining that Jesus made this table well. That he took pride in his work. He made that table beautiful and solid, that Jesus the carpenter didn't cut corners, he designed that table to be both functional and attractive. Jesus, as I thought about it, made that table so that it would bring joy to the family that would gather around it. He made it so that that spot that it occupied, that spot in the middle of some home, that spot of the world would because of this table, be a nicer place. But as soon as I made that assumption, I found myself wondering, why? Why would I assume that Jesus the carpenter took the time and the energy to make this particular table well, to make it beautiful or sturdy? Because when you step back and think about it, Surely Jesus knew that being a carpenter wasn't really his main purpose in life. It wasn't his ultimate profession. We assume that Jesus had some sense that a different, far more significant calling lay ahead of him. A calling whose importance dwarfed that of being a carpenter. I mean, after all, during those 15 years, Jesus was preparing to be savior of the world, to be Israel's Messiah, to be the Prince of Peace, and all that other stuff. And if that's the case, wasn't 
Jesus really just marking time during those 15 years until his real work began? I mean, his life was soon to have colossal spiritual significance. Why would Jesus care a whit about a table that was, after all, merely physical? Why would he bother to do good work rather than simply mediocre? What difference did it make to Jesus how well he did his job? Hmm. As I mused, I found myself curious if Jesus ever asked himself that question. What a difference does it make how well I do my job? Because I have a hunch that is a question that many in this room have found themselves asking themselves. Can I have an amen? Maybe you even asked this question to yourself this last week. Maybe it was Thursday afternoon at your desk at work. It was just after lunch and you found yourself losing focus on that pile of paperwork or that pointless meeting or that project that really wasn't all that interesting. Now, given what I know about this congregation, odds are that you were not crafting a table. On Thursday afternoon. Some of you might have been, most not. More likely, you were crafting some sort of software or an insurance policy or a marketing plan, maybe a supplier contract for the aircraft assembly line, maybe a lesson plan. Or for you, maybe Thursday afternoon, you were someplace other than a job. You were with your family or with some friends. You were volunteering at your favorite nonprofit. Or maybe you were in the grocery store parking lot trying to decide whether to go back to the car to grab your reusable grocery bags that you left in the trunk. <laughs> well, wherever you were, like Jesus, you were somewhere in the world of things. You were in the physical world, doing physical things, tangible, material things. And just maybe you found yourself wondering if any of it really mattered. Wondering if what you were doing had any eternal significance. If it was ultimately worth the effort to do good work and to make the world better. To pour your energy into your job or your family or your community or the planet. Because isn't it the case that compared to spiritual realities, the physical world is relatively meaningless, that it's merely temporary, that it's transitory? Isn't it the case, as the old hymn puts it, that this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through? Well, the reason I wanted you to join me musing about this hypothetical table that Jesus might have made is because it's a way to make concrete what I think is a really important question. What is God's relation to the physical world? Which, of course, informs our own relationship to the material world, to all that physical stuff in our lives, to our jobs, to our bodies, to our neighborhoods, to our city, to strangers that we meet and their welfare, to the fate of our nation, to the health of our culture, to the natural world in which we walk day by day. 
Does all of that stuff have any lasting significance? Or are we at the end of the day spiritual beings for whom all of this stuff is just an illusion? Ultimately, a temporary, transitory, unfortunate cage in which we happen to be trapped for a few decades until God finally springs us so that we can move on to what really matters. Well, if that way of seeing things sounds kind of familiar, it's likely because there is a long and significant strain of Christian thought that sees the material world in precisely those terms. And historically speaking, it is a stream of thought that we inherited from the Greek culture in which the Christian faith initially took root, and especially from the influence of Greek philosophy. Because for the most part, Greek philosophers were not all that enamored with stuff. For them, the material world was the lowest basis form of existence. What really mattered was ideas and concepts and truth and psyches. Because the material world was constantly changing... They concluded that it must be temporary, it must be unimportant, it must be the least connected to eternity and to eternal things. And if so, any attention that we pay to material things is ultimately wasted. And labor, especially manual labor, is little more than a regrettable burden that's only appropriate for the lowest classes. And because this way of thinking about the material world was so obvious to educated Greeks, it's not surprising that some early Christians found themselves absorbing these assumptions about the material world for themselves. So let me introduce to you the first megachurch pastor. His name is Marcion of Sinope. He lived in what is now Turkey between the years 85 and 160 A.D. Marcion was a preacher's kid, which may explain what happens in this story. His dad was a bishop, and he initially went into business, but along the way, he kind of dabbled in theology. In fact, he wrote a book that became an instant bestseller. And in this book, Marcion takes these Greek philosophical assumptions about stuff, and he uses them to rethink, to reconstruct the Christian faith that was just beginning to take hold around the Roman Empire. So, in this book, Marcion essentially poses the question, isn't the world a gross and disgusting place? Now, Marcion seemed especially bothered by locusts. He had a problem with locusts, and he also had a problem with human sexuality. And he just could not imagine God getting his hands dirty with all of this stuff. Ooh. And so Marcion made what to him seemed like a reasonable proposal. The Bible, he contended, actually describes two different gods. One, the Old Testament God who goes rogue, who defies the real God, and in a sheer act of vandalism creates the material world. But then the other God, the New Testament God of love, is on this mission to rescue humankind from that filthy world that the rogue Old Testament God had made. Well, none of this made his dad all that happy. <laughs> Nor 
did it make Marcion's own pastor and elders at his church who kicked him out of their congregation. Except Marcion just went across town and he started his own church. And apparently he was quite a preacher. Apparently he had this charismatic personality because almost immediately his church began to grow and grow and grow exponentially. Not only that, it soon planted satellite campuses all over the Roman Empire. Now, clearly the Old Testament was a problem for Marcion. He had a good solution. Throw it away. But that left one last hurdle. All of that talk in the New Testament about the incarnation. This absurd, disgusting, offensive idea that Jesus was God-made flesh. Well, Marcion had a solution for this, too. Jesus he declared, was not actually God in human form. That would be ridiculous. No, Jesus merely appeared to be human. It was all an optical illusion. This is a doctrine that came to be known as docetism. It's from the Greek word to seem or to appear. Jesus only seemed human. Now, if you're wondering why in the 21st century we're still carrying around the Old Testament in our Bibles, it's because in 144 AD, the larger Christian church excommunicated Marcion as a heretic. His contemporary, the North African church father Tertullian, wondering how Marcion could ever have imagined that God hated the created world, wrote this, a single flower. I mean, only a wildflower, not even a cultivated one, should have taught Marcion otherwise. Now, if you want to know more, Marcion is going to be the first of six heretics that we're going to be studying in a class starting in January, in January and February during the 9 a.m. hours. It's a class that I'll be leading, and it's titled, Partly Right, What We Learn from Six Early Church Heretics. And in a sense, Marcion did get something right. In fact, what he got right is what I intend as the main point of this message this morning. It's what I want you to know as we prepare for the birth of Jesus. What Marcion got right is that a God who would actually consent to the Incarnation... A God who would willingly enter creation and take on human form is simply not a God who feels the disgust and revulsion at the physical world that Marcion was convinced that God should feel. Marcion could not accept a God who was Emmanuel, who was God with us, because that sort of God is clearly not repulsed by the world. In fact, such a God even seems prepared to tolerate the world. You might even go so far as to say such a God appreciates the world. Oh, heck, such a God clearly loves the world. And if that phrase rings a bell, of course, it is the first half of one of the best-known Bible verses in the whole Bible, John 3.16. Now, we tend to jump to the second part of this book, all about the eternal life stuff. But today, I want you to linger a bit on the first clause of John 3.16. God so loved the world. And the Greek word here is the cosmos. 
God loves this universe of stuff that he made. And what does God do because he loves the world he made? Well, he steps into the middle of it in the form of his only son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God enters the physical world. And for those 15 unrecorded years, God, in the form of Jesus, goes to work every day. He labors each day to create beautiful objects that make the world a better place. But even in those supposedly more spiritual three years of Jesus' public ministry, again and again, Jesus displays his love for and his eager engagement with the physical world, pulling in with his disciples nets bursting with fish, replenishing the wine at a wedding in Cana, using mud and water to heal a blind man, showing the bounty of creation by feeding 5,000 from a boy's lunchbox. But from the perspective of the entire Bible, none of this should really surprise us. God's love for the physical world that he made is the very first and the very last word of Scripture. In the Bible's opening chapter, God lovingly crafts the world, and what does he do? He calls it good. God loves this beautiful stuff, this magnificent cosmos that he has made. And what happens in the final chapter of John's apocalypse, in the book of Revelation? Well, in direct contrast to what some pop theology might have you believe, the planet is not vaporized. The physical world is not burnt to a crisp. Instead, in the fullness of time, earth itself is preserved and renewed. A new restored earth under a new restored heaven with a restored human city at the center of it. What's more, God does not rescue us from this earth. He doesn't sneak us away somewhere else to heaven. At the culmination of all history, God comes down to earth and brings heaven to earth. John tells us that God makes his eternal dwelling place, his home here among his creatures in creation. He will live with them and they will be his own. And if this is how God relates to his creation, how he relates to the physical, material world at the very beginning and the very end, suddenly the logic of Emmanuel, the logic of the incarnation, makes a whole lot more sense. God so loves the world that he comes as Emmanuel, as God with us. In this week ahead, you might not be making a table. But in some way, you're going to be spending your effort and energy making something, doing something that makes this world a better place. At work, or at home, or in your neighborhood, or in our city. The message of Emmanuel, the message of God entering this world in human form, is that Marcion got it totally wrong. What you do this week does matter. If in Jesus, God is in this world, then this world must be a place worth making better. So, in Paul's words, whatever you do this week, 
do it to the glory of God. 